If you've got a Bible, take it out. Open it up to the book of John chapter 6. While you're doing that, I want to say hey to everyone who's watching online. I know we've got at least a few people from our house church that are joining us from afar. And so thanks so much for joining. Missed you guys. See you Wednesday. Uh, But go ahead and take out your Bible. Open it up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. All I want to do with you guys this morning is just go to the text. We're going to revisit a story that Steve taught through a couple of weeks ago. And I just want to maybe... um, share a couple of observations from this story that is well-worn, especially if you've grown up in the church before. 16 out of Jesus's 38 parables, 16 out of 38, were concerned about how we handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, about one every 10 verses, so 288 in all, deal directly with the topic of money. The Bible offers roughly 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses about faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Why do we think that is? Because how we handle our money is of great importance to God. The famous author and um, pastor and writer, Randy Alcorn, no relation, Randy Alcorn says, what we do with our money loudly affirms what kingdom we belong to. It's a verse I come, it's a quote I come back to over and over and over again because for me it is so like kind of gut-wrenching and eye-opening, especially as I look at my own bank account. It reveals and loudly affirms what kingdom I belong to. The gospel of Jesus will always challenge the assumptions and value structures of this world. It's literally an upside-down kingdom, so we should not be surprised that Jesus' view of money is probably quite different than ours and most definitely different than the world around us. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' view of money, possessions, security is going to challenge us in some way. It's going to challenge our our comfort. It's going to challenge our security. It's going to challenge our wants and our desires. Especially us, who, for all intents and purposes, live in the richest, most comfortable, and most materialistic-driven culture ever. And you and I also live in one of the richest, most comfort-driven subcultures in that culture that is Southern California. Some of you are already feeling like uncomfortable. You're like, Bert's got things to say that I'm not going to like today. This is true. (laughs) I'm probably going to say things you're not going to like today because I firmly believe that Jesus' view of money is so radically different than our world. And more often than not, we buy into the world's view of money over Jesus's. If you've ever used the phrase, my money, we're already off to a bad start. Because the Psalms tell us everything is the Lord's. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything included. So if we're already using the phrase, my money, we already are shaping in ourselves a worldview that is counter to the Jesus worldview. If we follow Jesus, everything is his. And he asks us to steward a little bit of it for a small amount of time. So what we do with it loudly affirms Are we bought into Jesus, his kingdom, and his view of money, or have we bought into the world around us? 
But rather than feeling squeamish about talking about money for the next 15 or so minutes, what if we sat in wonder of this God who not only lavishly is generous with us, but is gracious enough to show us the way for more with him, removing the roadblock between us and becoming more like him? One of the great church fathers, Augustine, famously said, God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. What if, in these couple of minutes we have together, God may be giving you more? What if he might be asking you to receive more from him? And what if part of that is releasing what you have? It does remind me of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? One of the things we've been working with our kids over the last couple of years is trying to already deform a worldview they've picked up on, a worldview of scarcity, that there's not enough, and if I have to share, that means it's a zero-sum game with toys in our house. So if someone has something, it means I don't have that same something. And it's a worldview and it's a posture of scarcity that says there's only, you know, three Lego things in our house, and if they have two of them, there's only one left for me. That is a very natural worldview for our kids to interpret because we do have finite amount of things in our house. But see, God's kingdom is quite different. He literally opens the scene with him going about creating in abundance. And he wants those who are part of his family to live in this posture and worldview of abundance. This view of God as a gracious father who will give good to those who ask. This, this view of God who creates this lavish garden, this lavish earth, and populates it with humans. This view of God that says there is always enough. You will always be satisfied in me. There is never not enough. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a zero-sum game. There is always enough for us. And I think one of the reasons our kids have a scarcity mindset is because Sherry and I live with a scarcity mindset. Because we're broken and we're fallen and we struggle with this just the same as you guys. And they interpret that. And they, you know, whenever we talk about our time, our finite time, whenever we talk about our bank account or our budgeting or how we're spending, they translate that into Legos and dolls and the things that they can tangibly put their hands to. And if we as parents are living with this scarcity mindset that there's never enough our kids will live the same way. And Jesus goes about trying to flip the scripts and said, no, 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 my kingdom is very, very different. It's an abundance mindset. And there's a story that Steve preached through a couple of weeks ago that sort of unlocks this as he's trying to do this with his disciples. He's trying to help them think differently about the kingdom of God. And it's in John chapter 6. And it's the feeding of the 5,000, which they count 5,000 dudes, so we can probably safely assume there's 20,000 plus people there if we include the women and the children. And I just want to share with you in this brief story, and I don't want to rehearse too much of it because A, Steve taught on it a few weeks ago, and B, it is a familiar story for many of us. But I want to maybe look through this story through the lens of an abundance mindset and a generosity mindset. As opposed to just like a cool Jesus the magician moment, I want us to see what Jesus is actually trying to teach his disciples about, particularly generosity in the kingdom of God. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, 
which is the sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because the signs he was doing on the sick. He's healing sick people and he's got a crowd. Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. Imagine the scene. Jesus is healing a bunch of people, and so he's got platform and influence, and people are following after him. He goes up on a mountain with his disciples, and this large crowd follows him. This is not like a church picnic. 20,000 some odd people have followed him up on this mountain, and they're just waiting to hear from him. They know he's been healing people. They know he's been teaching and they, they want to be there for whatever comes next. And his disciples ask this question, what are we going to give them to eat? What do we do with these people? There's a feast. Everyone else is celebrating a feast. We're on this desolate mountain and there's no food. You didn't bring the food. I didn't bring the food. There's no food here. What do we do with these people? And so the first observation I want you to notice here, right in these first couple of verses, is that generosity is a belief issue. Do I believe Jesus and his vision for the good life? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each one of them to get a little. Jesus poses this question. What should we feed him, guys? Hey, hey, disciples, what do you think we should do for this crowd? And they look around and go, shoot, this big sum of money would not even come close to feeding this amount of people. And we see Jesus said this to test him. Jesus was throwing out a little test balloon. Are you going to believe my vision for the good life or not? Because so far they weren't quite getting it. They were struggling with the belief that Jesus can do anything. You see, after this story, they may go back a second time, and Jesus says, what do we do with all these people? How do we feed them? And Philip says, ah, I know the answer to this one. We've lived through this. Jesus, we should see if there's any fish and and loaves of bread here that you can multiply. But right off the bat, they're saying, we don't know. Our finite resources, 200 denarii, is not enough to accomplish this big thing you've called us to. Generosity, first and foremost, is a belief issue. Do we believe Jesus and his vision for the good life. Continuing on, verse 8. Generosity is a discipline issue. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Generosity is a discipline issue. Will we faithfully respond differently than the world around us? So far, have the disciples been responding any differently from the world around them? Were they living with this abundance, generous mindset, or were they living with this scarcity mindset? And John highlights that there's a boy here. He's got some stuff. And they're still thinking that's not enough to accomplish what you've got. But in John's account, we see the disciples sort of inventory the food that is there, that is available But they tell Jesus, there's no way, it won't matter. Don't even worry about it. It's like nothing over here. Not even close to be able to feed this crowd. And how often is that our posture? Jesus, I don't have much. 
I'm barely making ends meet as it is. You can't possibly use me to be generous. There's no way my contribution will matter. It's only a little bit. But I believe this miracle from Jesus was just as much to stretch the faith and the trust of his disciples than it was feeding a crowd. He wanted them to see that whatever they brought to the table, he could use. No matter how small it was. But it starts with belief and discipline. Will we discipline ourselves to be generous even when we think our contribution won't matter? Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. What I want you to pick up on these two verses, that generosity is not just a belief in a discipline issue, it is a trust issue. Notice the subtle handoff that John doesn't quite go into detail. Matthew actually goes into detail and tells his disciple in Matthew 14, 18, tells his disciples, hey, go to that little boy who's got just a couple of fish and a couple of bread, yank them from him. We're going to use that stuff. Now imagine how the story would have turned out if the boy said, no, this is my food. This is my money. These are my resources. God, you can't have these. Imagine how different the story might have turned out if the boy had a scarcity mindset. If he hoarded. If he said, you know what, I'm not exactly sure what my plans are tomorrow. I may need food for tomorrow. So I'm just going to actually hang back because I'm not quite sure what tomorrow is going to look like. But he didn't. And this little boy got to be a part of the story If this little boy had a selfish heart and wanted to keep what he thought was his just for himself and didn't trust Jesus with his resources, saying, mine, this miracle would not have happened. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Generosity is a partnership issue. Jesus could have done all this by himself. He could have levitated these baskets into place. He could have like made them sort of vanish. or dis- He could have done anything he wanted to do. But in this moment, Jesus chooses to use his disciples to be a part of this miracle. He says, hey, you go get the fish and the loaves from the boy. Hey, you know, you're going to gather up all the baskets. You're going to partner with me in this miraculous and generous work that I'm doing? Will we partner with God in the work he wants to do in and through us? The disciples not only just collected fish and loaves and gave them to Jesus, but Jesus lets them be a part of the story. And to this day, we're reading about their partnership. Do we have the faith of a child in the ability of Jesus to multiply what we have and partner with him in that multiplication? Or do we look at the need in our world and say, my little bit won't actually matter? Generosity is a belief issue. It's a discipline issue. It's a trust issue. It's a partnership issue. And lastly, I think most beautifully for today, it is a multiplication issue. Do we believe God can do more with us than we can do on our own? And do we believe God can do more with us together in partnership with him and each other, this vertical and horizontal movement 
than we can do off on our own. Notice in the narrative, verse 11, so also the bread and the fish, they had as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so nothing would be lost. They gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So not only from this handful of fish and loaves, was there enough to feed 20,000 plus people, there were leftovers. What a beautiful picture of abundance. Jesus could have calculated this perfectly and said, here are the exact number of fishes and loaves. Jesus knows everything, so he knows exactly how hungry we are. And he's going to give everyone the right amount of bread and fishes and all that stuff. He says, no, 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 we're going to go over the top. There are going to be extra donuts and bagels at the table. We're going to go lavish on these people, so much so that there's going to be extra, and we're going to have to send people home with a doggy bag as they leave. All that from just this little boy's lunch. A couple loaves of bread, a couple fish. Jesus quite literally multiplied to the point where there was stuff left over. When we join God in his work, when we do seek his kingdom first, not our own, when we entrust him with our whole selves, he multiplies our effectiveness. When we come to him in a posture of trust and generosity, he multiplies the effectiveness and the effort. Can you imagine that little boy's amazement at the miracle that happened? Like that was the dude's lunch and it fed everybody. Jesus used the little kid's lunch. Look at all the people it fed. Notice how that little boy's faith might have been stretched and multiplied. Dude, that guy got an experience with Jesus he will never forget. Imagine the disciples who were up close and personal watching this happen. Imagine how their faith and their trust was stretched as well. A moment they will never forget. And it reminds me of that line that Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, as he's asking them for money, Paul's this sort of like kingdom of God money launderer in the first century. It's kind of amazing. He's moving money from here to here. This church, this country, flying under the radar, like bypassing border checks. He's just like hustling money for God in the first century. And as he's writing to one of his supporters, the church at Philippi, he's writing to them saying, you know what? I've learned, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned how to handle the pressures of a lot and the pressures of a little. I've learned how to be content with much and content with little. He says, I'm writing to you, asking for your help. But he says this line in verse 17, Philippians 4, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What does that mean? It means whatever Paul was on about at that moment was not the main project. The main project were the givers. See, especially here in our posture in Southern California, in America, in the Western world, we are privileged in all sorts of ways, and it's incredible. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Like, I love living here. I love living in this country. I love living in Southern California, but we have it better than most of the world, all right? And we often think when we, when we give money, whether it's to this new church plant in an urban setting, to missionaries uh, who are doing the work of God in Denver or around the world, when we give to organizations like Touch Nepal or Zoe International who do an amazing kingdom work, we think, I'm helping them out. They need my money, I'm going to give my money, and I'm going to feel good about myself. 
They do need our money. Paul is straight up asking the Philippians for money, right? Zoe International needs money from American churches to continue the work of rescuing kids out of human trafficking and sex slavery. They need funding. But Paul's primary concern is your heart and my heart. He is on about the work that God is doing in you to unclench the satanic grip we have on money and possessions. Especially in the time and place where we live. This could not be a more relevant idea for us to wrap our eyes and head around. Like, we need this. We need to know that we're given to some incredible church plants, missionaries, and organizations. And God will use us to further the kingdom through these people. But as we remember what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, you and I are the project. Touch Nepal's not the project. Steve's the project. Zoe International's not the project. Danny's the project. These church plants are not the project. We, Arise and Anthem, are the project. Will we take what meager offerings we do have, trust God with them to multiply them beyond our imagination, and then be shaped and formed? And have our faith, like the little boy and the disciples, our faith in Jesus stretched because we partnered with him in that work. Throughout the Bible, there are incredibly, a credible amount of verses about money, possessions, resources, and how we handle them. The driving point of every single one of them is it is about your heart. The Old Testament prophet Hosea reminds us that God does not desire love. and He's not desire uh, uh, sacrifice, but steadfast love. Not burnt offerings, but the knowledge of God. He doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. But he wants your heart, and he will use your money to accomplish his purpose. Jesus reminds us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which reminds us that money is not only an indicator of where your heart is, but where it's going. So look at your bank account. Where's your heart? And where is it going? Play that trajectory out 10 or 20 years. I think it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence that older people in my life are either the most generous people that I've ever known or the most stingy people that I've ever known. Because over time, over the long haul with Jesus, you either yield yourself and your resources to him and become more and more the kind of person who will partner with God in generosity, or you spend most of your life protecting and hoarding. And those rhythms and patterns get cemented in as you get older. That's why we're concerned with teaching our kids about generosity at ages 7, 5, and 4. Because I want them to have an abundance mindset, a commitment to generosity that will be cemented in them as they grow older. It's where your treasure is. It's where your heart is also. It's where it is and where it's going. When we steward what has been entrusted to us, we prepare ourselves for more of what God will do in this world. So I want to actually end in an incredibly practical way. And if you were with us at Home Base Anthem last week, you heard some of this. Uh, I want to remind you, but if you are not here with us uh, at our home base, I want to share with you a few practicals. So I kind of trust during this week of prayer and fasting, you've already been maybe engaging with God and your spouse and maybe with kids about what generosity looks like for you this time around. But I do want to give you a couple of helpful, like, maybe nudges. Because I know there's going to be a, a bunch of different generosity stories here in the room. 
So first, if you do not give at all, like if giving is not a part of your regular rhythm and budget, there is no better day to start. And I say that with like, with, I don't know, full confidence in that because we don't keep any of that. So even if you've got baggage about church and money, dude, all this money goes out the window. Start today. It's a great day to start. And start with something. Don't start where you think you should be. Start with where you are. My father-in-law, when he gives out money advice, particularly when he talks about giving, is he says he's always amazed at the amount of people who don't give because they don't give what they think they should give, not what they actually can give right now. Start with a little bit. I, pers- okay, personal little moment over here. I think there's no one that is a Christian and part of a local church that shouldn't engage in generosity somehow. I don't care if it's a dollar a month because it is harder to go from a zero to a dollar than a dollar to a thousand. Because when you start to engage in giving, you break the hold money has on your heart. And if money has a hold on your heart, you'll make excuses for why you can't give a thousand dollars a month and hold back that five. So start today, start somewhere, start with something. Start with where you are, not where you should be. Second scenario, if you do give a little, maybe irregularly, sparingly, or you know God may be calling you into greater generosity, meet him in that moment. Today could be a breakthrough moment for your relationship with God and money. Lean into it. And if you do give regularly and consistently, if that's you in the room, first of all, thank you. God sees that and he is honored that you have a vision of money that he has. You already know the blessing that comes from giving and not receiving. And my encouragement to you is remember to be joyful about that generosity. Often I talk to people who are faithful, regular, generous givers, and it's like on monthly auto pay, and so they don't even think about it. So if you do give regularly and generously, and if you give online like I do, sometimes I don't even think about it because I don't have to write the check, I don't have to pull cash out of my bank, it just happens automatically, and I don't think about it. So my encouragement, if that's to you, is take a moment and be joyful about that generosity. Like, remember that God can do more than we can ask or imagine with that. Multiplies our effectiveness. Celebrate generosity is a day of disciplining ourselves to go against the way of the world, against the way of our flesh, and choose to serve God. Generosity is a response to Christ in us. His presence fills us. It overflows in blessing and provision for others. Throughout history, God uses his people to fund his mission. So, you're invited in. This is all invitation. No pressure, no coercion, no manipulation. I just wanted to share a story from Scripture, make some observations, and say this is the invitation in the way of Jesus, to give more and more of yourself away. So to that end, I'm going to read a passage of scripture. We're going to watch one more video, and then we're going to sing together. And that passage is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as Paul speaking to our posture of generosity. How we give is just as important that we give. Paul says this, the point is this, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his or her heart, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. How you finish that sentence is incredibly revealing. You will be enriched every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You notice generosity is a gospel implication. And the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. Will they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you? Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Paul is reminding us our posture matters. And that generosity is a simple outflow of the gospel come to you and through you. And it's all invitation. So my question, do you want more from God? Do you want to partner with him? Do you want to enjoy the blessing that comes from giving and not receiving? Do you want to... Maybe take a moment to reorganize your worldview around his generous abundance. Or do you want to stay trapped in this mindset of scarcity? No pressure, no coercion, honestly. It is just invitation. And those of us in the room who have walked generosity stories know it is the good life. So I want to invite you into more. Let's pray. Jesus. I'm so humbled and convicted for how much your view of money is different than my view of money. And I'm immediately aware of how I spend my money in this moment as I'm teaching on generosity and know that I fall so short. Thank you for your grace. Thank you. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus, you invite us into a different and better life, one that is more blessed because we're giving and receiving. Jesus, I pray that line in Scripture Sherry reminded us earlier, I pray that we would take hold of this vision that we are blessed to be a blessing. Jesus, everything we have is yours. The generosity, while an act of obedience, is this act of invitational, cheerful obedience. So I pray that blessing over each and every person in the room, everyone watching online, those in our communities who are not here today but engaging with us. I pray for breakthrough with money. I pray for joy in our giving and our generosity. I pray for a a transformed mind, especially as we think about the one thing we all hold so dear, which is money. I pray that you would help us to live lives free of the bondage of money, seeking your kingdom for trusting you to provide everything else for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.